The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Restless and weary, we take to the microphone. It's podcast time. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to Thursday's Fantasy NBA Today. I'm Dan Bespris. This is a hoop ball, hoop dash ball presentation. Quarantine continues. Everybody's got their different numbers, and I have to try to remember what I'm actually working with here. This is officially the three-week mark today since California put in place our stay-at-home orders, and it's basically the four-week marks since we, as a family, went into lockdown. As many of you know, you listened to my show from uh, like a week and a half ago. We had a uh, a kid in this mix. And so basically the second that things started to pick up even a little bit, right around the time the NBA was suspended, we went into a state of virtual quarantine. I admit I still went to the hardware store. I needed packing tape. And I went to a storage unit because we needed to get a whole bunch of crap out of our apartment to make room for a new kid. Uh, so it wasn't the full quarantine that began probably on the 15th for us. So we're not quite to the four-week mark there. As per usual, I'd like to start the podcast by just briefly going over anything the latest in our nationwide situation. And there's not a whole lot today, so we're not going to uh, spend a ton of time on it. So far this week, most of our COVID discussion has revolved around when we can start to look for good signs. And I think the main point to take away from all of our discussions this week is that every single thing you look at is a lagging indicator of some length of time. And so right now, if you're looking for good news, if you're looking for reasons for some optimism, there are a couple of them. Number one, uh, there have been reports coming out that the U.S. might be able to adjust downward slightly the expected fatalities, at least of wave one. So that's uh, that's good news. Another good news piece of, if you're looking for this sort of thing, is to look for uh, just general cases in the place that put in stay-at-home orders about three weeks ago. The bad news, of course, is that there are going to be numbers that emerge, metrics that come out here over the next week or so that are horrifying. Because the biggest areas, the areas most intensely hit, and the you know the place the most populous places, even the ones that put in orders early, are still moving towards the biggest, most most likely mortality days of this uh, initial wave of the infection. Because as we talked about yesterday, there's about a four-week lag on that. So you'll see that peak because a lot of the cases, well, you'll see that peak next week. And just quickly here on the math front, before we dive into our fourth Pacific Division team, uh, I, I, I did that weird, you know, water-into-a-cup discussion on yesterday's show, and I think maybe it's easier to just visualize it like this. If you're looking at a lagging indicator, assume that the day before measures were put in place in whatever state you happen to be in is going to correspond to the biggest 
results of whatever test you're looking for at whatever length of lag that might be. So to make it simple, to really simplify how we're thinking of this in our mind, if we assume that the reporting of deaths due to the coronavirus takes about four weeks from someone's first exposure, because we talked about it yesterday, it's about five days of incubation, about seven of people staying at home, then they go to the hospital and it's about another 11 or 12 days there, and then you'll get a death report probably, if that's what happens, a couple days after that. So that gets you to just shy of four weeks by a couple of days probably. And so then what you trace it back, you assume that the greatest spread was occurring right before measures were put in place. I think we can all agree that that's the case. Once people are separated, the spread is going to slow down starting from that point on. But up to that point, you still had tens of thousands of people cramming into arenas for sporting events and uh, political rallies and bars and restaurants. And so that last day is going to correspond to the biggest number of whatever metric you're looking at. So if it's new infections and that's a two-week lag, then exactly two weeks from that day, you should see your biggest new infection number, and then that should level off and start to come down a little bit after that. And if it's hospitalizations and that's a three-week lag, well, then three weeks after your measure was put in place, which, by the way, again, is today here in California, you should see your biggest new number of hospitalizations before that then starts to come down a little bit. Now, it's fuzzy. It's not going to be exactly on the three-week mark, so you'll probably see a small, maybe two, three, four-day chunk of time where things sort of hit the peak of the curve. And just like a basket, just like a jump shot, figuring out where the exact apex is is up to the official deciding if it's goaltending or not. But it's hard. You know, you see the ball sort of float at the apex before starting to come back down. And then once it does, it'll come back down more steeply. And then, of course, the worst part of this is next week, you'll probably see that three or four day span where the mortality is the largest number. But that, to me, I thought was an easier way. And this is something that hits you when you're up in the middle of the night with a newborn. Hey, I just thought of a new way of explaining this on a podcast. Uh, Jot down weird shorthand note on piece of paper that says talk about distance from last day and then you know actually do it that's this part of the plan actually doing it so I don't know if that made things any simpler but in my mind I was like oh that makes a lot of sense actually because if you know how much a particular metric lags by if it takes four weeks for us to find out whether someone that was exposed to a coronavirus is going to pass away or not then exactly four weeks from the last day before measures, meaning the biggest spread day, you will get the biggest death day. Which is a really sad and unnerving way to put it, but you know you can tie that to any metric you want. So, uh, the good news for, on that, again, is uh, at least we know what we're aiming for. Uh, bad news is we're still not at that point yet. Um and it also corresponds, of course, to the most number of people in the hospital. So that's also going to be coming uh, over the next week in places that put into effect measures three weeks ago. Uh, and the thing that scares the hell out of me, as I said yesterday, is places that just put measures in within the last three or four days that are staring down the barrel now of three and a half weeks of increasing and fast 
increasing fast numbers. And I'll be thinking about you guys. So please stay safe, particularly in those places. Because I can tell you already here in California, uh, the number of infected people is is starting to come down. You, I mean, you can see the, the curve flattening already. And hopefully we can keep that going across the nation. Because, damn it, we miss sports. We miss sports. I can't look at the news that much. It's just too damn sad. And I can't watch the old games because it feels like I'm cheating on my brain. And uh, that brings us to today's fantasy discussion, which I'm sure is what you're actually tuning in for. And see, I kept that uh, COVID part down to like seven minutes today. That's uh, a little bit better than usual. Two teams left in the, in the Pacific Division, the Golden State Warriors and the Sacramento Kings. And today we will take our tour de force. I would have said to Oakland, but that's not where they play anymore. To San Francisco, where we'll take a look at the Golden State Warriors of 2019-2020, and it was a weird one. Ooh, was it a weird one for the Warriors. At the beginning of the season, there was a hope that perhaps, not that, I mean, I thought for one that they were going to have a we're still competitive kind of year where guys like Draymond Green and Steph Curry wanted to prove that they could do quite a lot, even without Kevin Durant and then without Klay Thompson going down. And who knows if that would have borne itself out. We'll never know. Because five games into the end of the season, Steph Curry broke his wrist. And four games into the season, right? Broke his wrist. And the, any opportunity for that team to make noise this season was crushed, along with the bones in his wrist. Uh, the hope when we saw it happen was that it was going to be a month or two. And because, you know, you see guys come back from stuff like this, but they decided to really go hard on the shutdown. And Steph Curry missed almost four months of basketball. And whatever they were going to do here down the stretch, we also won't really ever know, because even if they play some regular season games, it'll be multiple months down the line. So we, we sort of lost track of that. Now, in his brief activity this year, Steph was ranked in the 30s, but it's kind of impossible to make an assessment of this because, you know, for so many reasons, uh, he played one game after coming back and logged 27 minutes with 23 points. Prior to going down, the Warriors were getting smoked in a lot of their early season games, uh, but Steph looked good enough in those outside of a robust turnover count. He had eight in his first game of the year. Uh, he, was, he shot 40%. In five games, you know, two bad games can bring him down. But you also saw glimmers. For instance, the game in Oklahoma City, the Warriors' lone win in games that Steph played this year. They were 1-4 when he was on the floor. He put up 26 points, 11 assists, 3 steals, 4 three-pointers uh, on 9 out of 17 shooting. And this will go down in history, I suppose. Steph made all of his free throws this season. He had all 26 of them uh, in those five games. So there was... A lot of stuff to look at and say, boy, what could have been, because you know the scoring was coming up from 21. There was no way he was going to end the season taking 16 shots a game on that iteration of the Warriors. The assists were going to likely be, I would have ventured to say, a career high for him this year. Uh, but then you look back and he did have an eight and a half assist season in 2013-2014, so... Uh, might not have eclipsed that number. I think you were definitely going to be looking at assist numbers in the sevens at the very least this year as the team's primary uh, ball handler. He and Draymond Green on the offensive side uh, probably would have seen 
his career high in scoring or very close to it near that 30-point mark in his insane 2015-2016 season. I don't know what would have come of the steals. He's 1.7 for his career. Uh, you know, even if that comes down a little bit, you're looking at maybe 1.5. Uh, and then the field goal percent is always up in the 47 to 50 range for him. So, you know, the, by all accounts, without the wrist injury, you were probably looking at a top five, maybe even top three, maybe even top two finish for Steph this year. But we'll never know. We'll never know. I dodged a massive bullet because I was a huge Steph Curry proponent this year. And... I, I don't really know that, that you could necessarily call that a, a bad prediction. It was wildly unlucky. I mean, I think most of the fantasy community was pretty high on him thinking, well, what? Like, you know, what is he going to do? Miss 10, 15 games with ankle stuff? Maybe. You know, he played in 69 at 82 games last year. Uh, he had a nice stretch in there for about five seasons where he's playing in 78 to 80 games every year. Even if he misses a handful in the modern NBA, everybody's missing a handful. So you roll that into what would be a crazy high per game number. Well, we'll never know. What are you going to do? I mean, he ended up being, uh, I can't call it, I really don't think I can call it the worst pick in fantasy because if he had stayed healthy, he would have been really good. He was certainly the most unlucky pick in all of fantasy sports this year to spend a first round pick on a guy that plays four games, five, if you count the one coming back. Of course, his injury changed the trajectory of the Warriors overall, and it sort of casts a cloud on everything else that we're going to be talking about today. What do you do with Steph Curry going forward? I, I mean, I would draft him in the top five again. I don't see no reason to back off from that. We know what Steph is when there's no Kevin Durant around. Even if Klay Thompson's back and Andrew Wiggins is around, I mean, this dude's insane. Arguably the best shooter of all time. So yeah, I would take another chance on him. I don't think this is happening again. And with Clay back next year uh, and Wiggins on the roster all season long, I think they like what they've got out of Marquise Chris. They're probably going to go look for a center, although salary cap stuff is going to make things a little bit weirder. You might see more Kevon Looney next season. They were really going easy on him with injuries and tanking this year. Next season, they're going to try to win again. I actually feel... And so this was always one thing that you had to put in the back of your mind that I kind of talked myself out of, and that was, well, what if this was really the year, because there was no Clay Thompson, and there was no Kevin Durant, and it's possible that my, that we, me, I, had a misread on this Warrior team. I thought they would want to prove people wrong. Now, again, we'll never know, because if Steph had stayed healthy, we would have gotten a better idea of what they... We're going to try to become. They got off to a slow start even before he got hurt, but what I mean, what are you really going to make out of four games? It's possible that the Warriors were just going to treat this year as kind of a whatever season, even, even with Steph had stayed healthy all year. Again, we can never know for sure, but you do have to take some of that stuff into account. Do we think it's going to be a prove-it year for some of these guys to say, screw you, Folks that said we couldn't do it without Kevin Durant, don't you remember we did do it without Kevin Durant? Or was it criminy? We've played in so many finals in a row, we just need to throttle back for a season. So maybe this was always going to be the throttle back year. But it doesn't matter anymore. 
because we're past that now. The lesson to take away, I think, from the entire Warriors organization is related to that notion. And that is, if you go into a draft, a fantasy draft, and you have a big question hanging over your head of whether or not a team is really going to be competing, and I'm not talking about some of the middling teams, whether or not they're going to be going for a playoff spot, but it does apply in that respect a little bit as well. You could use Anthony Davis with New Orleans as kind of an example of that. Hey, what about what? what's different about a roster when a team wants to make a splash? Well, guys are going to play through nagging injuries. You're going to see more focus on a night-to-night basis. And maybe that was never really in the cards for the Warriors this year. So we'll certainly look at that with different teams, not the Warriors, because next year you know they're going to be tr- they're going to be fighting again. They're going to have their roster back. They're going to be ready to roll. But there are going to be teams. There's always a handful. There's always two or three teams where you're like, eh, does this team really want to compete? Because if they have veterans on a team that doesn't want to compete, you're asking for trouble. It doesn't always fail. You know, nothing is 100%. But if you have veterans on a team that's not looking to compete, you can expect them to take off a lot of games. Every nagging injury, lots of back-to-backs, they're just going to be like, you know, eh, not, not a big deal. Uh, kind of Lakers of last year. That was a warm-up year for LeBron before he could get his co-star in L.A. That's the example of the other direction. You can always find examples of this, season-to-season basis. So... Just briefly looking ahead now, I'm very high on Warriors for next year. I think they're going to be grinding. I think they want to win next year. I think they want to prove that with their main dudes back and somehow turning Kevin Durant's departure into Andrew Wiggins, which for as much as I don't like Andrew Wiggins' fantasy game or even his reality game all that much, he's a whole lot better than a goose egg. He's way better than a random G-leaguer you can throw in at small forward. He's a lot better than that. He's not a great basketball player. I don't think he ever will be. But considering they could have lost Kevin Durant for nothing and it ended up being D'Angelo Russell, which ended up being Andrew Wiggins, that's good for them. They got that, And he can play a little defense. Dude can play a little D. So, uh... In these, in these seasons so far, or postmortems, or whatever you want to call it, we run into a couple of these where guys got moved midseason. So with Andrew Wiggins, who played the final roughly month of his year with the Warriors, and D'Angelo Russell, who played the final month of his year up, well, you know, intermittently, up in Minnesota, I'm going to make a judgment call on when we talk about guys on current versus new teams you can usually do a little bit of both. I like the idea of talking about a guy with his new team because it allows us to look towards the future a little bit more. Uh, but we'll go to Draymond Green first, so I'm getting one player ahead of myself anyway. Draymond Green finished at number 86 in 9-cat this year. 8.6 boards, 6 assists, uh, 2.2 combined defensive stats, 0.83 balls. 39% from the field, 76 at the free throw line in what was a pretty weird season for Dre. A number of missed games bouncing around. Uh, he played in only 43 of the Warriors games. And overall, his season was dramatically impacted by the lack of Steph Curry because he didn't have people to throw the ball to a lot of the time. 
I expected way more. This was a bad season for Dre. It was his lowest minute count since his sophomore campaign back in 2013-2014 at only 28 minutes a game. But again, it's hard to handicap this season for Green because effectively, once Steph Curry got hurt, there was no reason for him to try. This is a guy who'd become accustomed to this point of competing for championships. We saw what he looked like in the playoffs last year. He turned into a completely different human being. I mean, it was it was like night and day. Right? I mean, playoff Draymond was was crazy. And so a lot of us, myself included, looked at it and were like, okay, well, which Draymond are we going to get this year? Well, as soon as Steph went down, you knew you were getting the not the Draymond that didn't give a crap. It was quite obvious. I mean, you know, look at the look at the three games that Steph was fully healthy to start the year. Draymond Green had a 16-17-10 triple-double among those games. Warriors got blown out in uh in their first two, so his lines were not that not that juicy. He had 10-5 and 2 with a couple of steals, 11-4 and 3 with a steal, and anyways for 16-17 and 10 with two steals in that third game of the year. Uh, four, five, and four in the game. Steph broke his wrist in only 24 minutes, and from that point on, it was like, all right, well, what am I even? What are we really even going for here? There were mixtures of game. There were games where he got himself locked in, like the Christmas Day game. Draymond played harder. He had a triple double against the Knicks, but overall, it was a bad year. It was a year where he just didn't really care that much. Yeah, I know. There are intermittent games where he sort of got himself up. Playing bad teams, I think he was able to convince himself to have a little more fun out there. But basically, anytime someone exerted a little stress on the Warriors, he called it a day. And he missed a bunch of games, and they didn't want him to play through stuff either. I think Draymond Green could be wildly underdrafted next year. And I don't know that we're ever going to get back to what he was a couple seasons back when he was just pure facilitator. I mean, look back at 2016-2017. He averaged two steals and 1.4 blocks a game, 10 points, eight boards, seven assists that year, and a three-pointer. Do we, do, are we getting back to that? No, I don't think so. But what about the year after that, which would be 17-18 season? 11, 7.5, and, and 7, 1.4 steals, 1.3 blocks, and a three-pointer? Why not? I think Draymond Green has a chance to be, I mean, I'd say he has a great opportunity to be a top 50 guy. I could almost guarantee it if the team stays healthy and, uh, and competitive all season long. And I would say he's got an outside shot to get inside the top 30 next year. Like you could go back, you could see that that big year for him was like a second round type of value. He had two seasons in a row where he was posting second round-ish value. And then the 11, 7, and 7 was more like a third-round guy. I really think Drake could be a third-round guy next year on a Warriors team that's actually trying again. This year was a clunker. I took him in one spot. I thought he would be kind of that well-rounded guy, and he sort of was that. He still gave you, you know, rebounds, assists, steals, some blocks, but the other stuff was lacking. There needed to be more. The field goal percent needed to be not quite so awful. You wanted to get over 10 points, probably. 
It was backseat, Draymond, but it wasn't backseat because we're going to coast into the playoffs. It was backseat because I'll oh, let the young guys play and skip half the year. So that one stunk, but he's going to be underdrafted next year, and that's sweet. So we'll we'll capitalize that when the time is right. Andrew Wiggins, who we'll talk about here with the Warriors. He finished at number 93 in 9-cat um, after getting off to a really good start. Things petered off for Wiggins a little bit. A lot of the old stuff kind of crept back in. The field goal percent, uh, 44.7. He took a bunch of three-pointers this year, so that was a big step in the right direction. And to his credit, I mean, this is the first time he's been inside the top 100 in nine-cat in a while. Steals and blocks, which is kind of nice. He had a big role with the Warriors, uh, but that's going to be largely diminished next year with everybody coming back healthy. Um, am I drafting Andrew Wiggins next season? No, probably not. He's the third scoring option on the Warriors and really the fourth fiddle on the Warriors next year. That's assuming they don't bring in anyone uh, to probably log up a big man spot. Let's assume they don't. Wiggins has pretty consistently been the one or two option on teams he's been on. As the third or fourth option, I think things are going to get pretty cramped for him. So this was kind of the year. That said, I think he's probably going to be a happier guy next year playing on a winning team. So that might bring him a measure of joy. With the Warriors, you average 19, 4.5, and 3.5 with 1.3 steals and 1.4 blocks. He was blocking shots like crazy in Golden State. But even in Minnesota this year, he was at 22, 5, and 3.5 and uh, with 0.9 blocks. The steals were oddly down with the Wolves. Three-pointers, uh, career high this season. Free throw percent, his best mark since 2016. Field goal percent was right around his career mark, despite the increase in three-pointers. And the assists were career highs with both teams, Minnesota and Golden State. I don't know if that sticks in Golden State next year with the, the number of guys they're going to have moving around, but the Warriors love ball movement, so maybe it does. Still probably an intriguing guy to grab in, in more of a points league type of format because... You know, he'll he'll chuck some shots up. He always does, even as a third option. But, you know, simple lesson here is that he's just not going to have the same role. And even if you can talk yourself into efficiency bumps or things like that, it's not going to make up for a lack of volume. And then the other stories with the Warriors this year are uh, ones that we might just end up forgetting about. You know, uh, Damian Lee ended up as number 117 in 9-cat. At about 13 points, five boards, a little under three assists, a steal, uh, bad field goal percent, really nice free throw number. Had a good season, kind of up and down a little bit. Finished the year strong when the team was going into even harder tank mode. Uh, we preached him hard around Christmas. I ended up bailing on him a little bit after that, and he was inconsistent. The guy that we really liked on the Warriors, and I want to spend a, a touch more time on, is Marquise Chris who finished the season at number 132 overall. But if you go to the last, say, I don't know, 25 to 30 games, he was almost a top 50 asset. And he was well inside the top 50 once he earned and held on to that starting job. What's going to come of Marquise Chris? I really don't know. It's impossible to make this prediction going forward because... We don't know if the Warriors are going to change up their front court at all. As it stands right now, he makes a lot of sense as the run-and-gun center with this team, the guy that can go to the rim, 
that actually can protect the rim a little bit on the opposite side because when he started playing more ball games, I mean, look at his look at his last 10 games even. He was at 13 and 9 with a steal and a block on 58% from the field. Now he doesn't space the floor. So you wonder if that will keep him off the court when the Warriors are, you know, running out a lineup in the in the fourth quarter where they want to open things up a little bit. As it stands right now, he's an intriguing late draft pick. But we really have to keep a close watch on what the Warriors are doing moving forward and basically the addition of any proven bodies in the front court might be enough to knock him off his path. Otherwise, uh, all these guys that did a little bit of stuff for the Warriors this year are going to fall into the rear view. Damian Lee is going to be back behind Clay Thompson. Uh, Kai Bowman will be behind Steph Curry. Eric Pascal will be behind Draymond Green and potentially Marquise Chris in front court minutes. Uh, who else do we even need to mention? Jordan Poole? Nope. Michael Mulder? Nah. Alan Smilagic? Probably mispronouncing that. The mishmash. They went mishmash style this year. And that's all right. We had a little bit of fun. We had so many Marquise Chris's. Oh, that was a big win on the pickup side. I had a lot of you guys thank me for that one. You know, thank me. This is fun. I love doing this stuff. I got Marquise Chris in, I think, four out of my five most important money leagues. You could just see the minutes starting to trend in his direction. And then when they signed him to that contract, it was like, oh, okay. It was really on one spot that I wanted him that I didn't get him. Difference maker, man. He was great down the stretch. Really spectacular. So that's the Warriors, and I do, I do again, think that the big lesson from this team is looking back and thinking, okay, well, we need to do a better job next year of assessing which teams might pull the plug on the season. And we don't know who that's going to be right now. It's too early to do that, but we'll definitely work that into the handicapping a little bit more next year than we did this year. Tomorrow, we'll wrap up the Pacific Division. The Sacramento Kings will be our Friday show breakdown. A lot to talk about with that organization. The weirdness. Ah, oh, we almost got Rashawn Holmes back before the season got canceled. Son of a gun. I'm Dan Baspers. This is Fantasy NBA Today. I uh, hope you guys are enjoying your Thursday. As always, stay safe. We'll catch up with you tomorrow. So long, everybody. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.